Diversion Audio. Hi, I'm Natalie Emmanuel. From Ramsey in Fast and Furious to Missande in Game of Thrones, I've loved playing roles of women whose resourcefulness, intelligence, and inner strength are pushed to the limit. And I've been inspired by women who withstood the phenomenal pressures of being a wartime leader. The history books too often will have us believe that the stories of leaders in times of war are stories of men, until now. In this episode, we go back 2,500 years to the time of the first Persian Empire, telling us the story of a woman who fought the Persians in ancient Iran is the daughter-father history duo of Emily and John Jordan. I'm proud to present War Queens, a podcast about powerful women leaders throughout the centuries and around the world. We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. We will continue to do everything possible to avoid an armed conflict. And the situation is a a grave one. We are driven by necessity to prepare to defend what was just gained, our freedom and our very being. Hey, Natalie. It's great to see you back in Atlanta. It's good to be back. So, guys, let's talk ancient warfare. How far back can we find a woman war leader? We can go back at least to 1100 BC, to biblical times, when the judge Deborah led the Israelites against the Canaanites. But that's another story. Today, we'll look farther in the east, in eastern Iran, at a mother whose bad side you don't want to get on. Yeah, you never want to get on my mom's bad side either. (laughs) But when your mom is the queen of a warrior nation of horse archers, not even an emperor should cross her. Emily, tell us about who you've got today. Queen Tamiris and her people, the Masajitai, were rugged nomads that rode along the West Asian steppes. Dressed in peaked caps, kind of like gnomes, Uh, they wore vibrant coats and baggy pants and lived this really exciting life of adventure and conflict. And they would enjoy the simple struggle of warriors earning their living. Herodotus, nicknamed the father of history, claimed them to be elusive sun worshippers who brandished weapons and wore armor of bronze accented with gold. Now about the time of our story, this is around 540 B.C., The Empire of Persia was the great superpower, and it's ruled by King Cyrus. Cyrus, called the Great King, King of Kings, King of the Four Corners of the World, King of the Seven Kingdoms. Moving on. But anyway, yeah, he has a lot of names. He rules this empire that stretched from the Mediterranean Sea to the Indus River, almost. And the Masajitai tribes were anxiously watching as this influence and this power and this territorial conquest starts moving closer and closer to their borders. And Cyrus has this flashy court. They've got a lot of wealth, a lot of money, a lot of culture. And they sort of look at everybody else as barbarians and savages. And I'd say from a maybe certain point of view that the Masajitai were uncivilized compared to the Persian courts. Uh, They weren't as taboo about intimacy and monogamy like the rest of the world at the time. Herodotus tells us that 
Every man had a wife, but if he wanted a certain woman, all he had to do was hang his quiver at her tent flap and he could uh, enjoy her. Um, and not to mention their version of a retirement party. Whenever a man could no longer swing his axe and really be of use to the people, uh, they would throw him this huge elaborate party. It was like the big event of the year. Uh, they would go around telling stories, drinking, um, and really celebrate uh, the man's greatest adventures. And it would be followed by a very special feast. Uh, they would actually murder the man of honor and his friends and family would ceremoniously eat him. Um, as barbaric as that sounds, that was their way of celebrating life. And, you know, part of me is trying very hard not to judge them because they, that's how they found meaning in death. Well, and it sort of reminds me, you remember that movie uh, Midsummer a few years ago about that, like, weird kind of Swedish cult that uh, when everybody got to, like, 72 or something, they jump off the cliff. And, yeah. you know, that's that's kind of what the Masajitai were doing here, except without the cliff jumping and the uh, psychedelic uh, drugs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we can't count out drugs for sure. We don't know. We don't know. Well, that actually brings us to a good point about Herodotus. Um, Herodotus, as you mentioned, is, is the father of history. And some people call him the father of history and the father of lies. He was a historian, he was very well-traveled, but he wasn't a historian in the same sense that we have historians today. He did look at a documentary evidence, but a lot of what he puts in his books, The History, and here we're in, I think, book one of the, his histories, uh, a lot of that comes from just things people had told him. And so, you know, we've said this before with Herodotus, uh, he's our boy and we like him. Yeah. But you got to sometimes take him with a grain of salt. And, you know, in this case, uh, there is uh, a lot of unknown about the Masajitai and, and Tamiris in particular. Yeah, that leaves us debating a lot of things. For example, like what language uh, Tamiris spoke. Yeah, in I think it was 2019, the Kazakhstan government came out with a biopic on Tamiris. And it's kind of a cool adventure movie, you know, foreign made, but it's it's pretty good. But in the movie, uh, Tamira speaks an old Turkic language. And the Iranians at that time, a lot of Iranians at the time, were unhappy with that. There was some controversy because they said that she would have spoken old Persian. And I guess that really highlights that for a lot of these questions, nobody really knows. Yeah. There's definitely a lot we don't know, but we do know that the Persians uh, did not like the Masajitai. They thought they were barbarians and they were sitting on some valuable land. So they had to be taken out. Yeah. By the year 530 BC, uh, the savage queen, as the Persians called her, Tamiris, is the widow of the late Masajitai king. And she tried her best to keep on her side of the Araxes River. She watched nervously as the Persians swallowed up one kingdom after another, and they began getting closer and closer to her border. King Cyrus toted his quiver over to Tamiris's wagon in a way to try to forge, I guess really force, a relationship with her um, under the threat of a uh, marriage proposal. For some people, marriage proposal really would be a threat. <laughs> yes. He's kind of an imperial stalker. Yes. Uh, she did not want to be intimidated, and she knew that he wanted not just her, but her dominions. Um, and she declined his offer. 
Yeah. Now, Cyrus was, uh, you know, he had massive armies, massive resources. So he began um, uh, aggregating his uh, armies on the eastern frontier, and he prepared for what he thought would be another easy victory against what Darth Vader would call a ragged band of rebel scum. Uh, this would be another trophy on his shelf. Now, Cyrus's armies had conquered the Lydians and the Egyptians and the Babylonians and, and the Indians. And so he'd been able to keep, you know, all these kingdoms as basically trophies. And he started the next phase of the Achaemenid invasion. And he had his best engineers begin building bridges over the Araxes River to allow his military to cross into uh, Tamiris's territory. So Tamiris has been walking a tightrope with the Persian Empire for a long time, but Cyrus pushed her into war. After the break, we'll find out what Tamiris did next. That gave Tamiris the perfect opportunity to spy along the East Bank and kind of form a strategy, see what's going on, and configure her odds. As it seems, her odds really were not looking great against Mm -hmm. this big empire. It's a superpower of its day. Yeah. She used this information and decided that she would write to King Cyrus, and she said, I advise you to abandon this enterprise, rule your own people, and try to bear the sight of me ruling mine. We talk a lot about war queens that write really good letters of diplomacy, and and she would be one of them, although it would fall on deaf ears. He only scoffed at her diplomatic attempt. So she offers him a fair fight out in the open, and she urges him to abandon these silly bridge projects that would leave her lands open in the future, Um, and she challenges him to pick a side of the river. Uh, Your side or mine, I'll be there. And this really shocked him. I mean, these little ragtag fighters are challenging him, at the time the greatest empire in the world, challenging them to an open and fair battle, and he got to pick the spot. Yeah, that's kind of like one of those Old West movies where they say, I'll meet you out on the town square at high noon, Um, or, uh, you know, kind of like in when we're all in, you know, middle school, and it's like, I'll see you at the parking lot, exactly. So, like... Everybody on, on Cyrus's side is, is shocked now. His war council uh, thinks of this as a gifty. They basically said, oh, she's going to let us pick the place? We got the place. Let's fight on our side of the river because she would have to supply her army on our side of the river, over a river, and then we can fight her on our own territory. And if we win, then her survivors are going to have to try to cross the river and we'll be able to pick them off with bows and arrows and we'll wipe out her uh, her army. And if for some reason the Masajitai got the upper hand, then all we have to do is withdraw our army deeper and deeper into Persian territory and uh, Tamiris's supply lines will be extended and she'll be easy pickings later. So this is a total win-win for us. We got to fight on our side of the river. But the king's war council was not unanimous. Uh, King Cyrus had one advisor who was an ex-king from a previous Persian conqueror uh, that he kept around for feisty gusto and likable brashness. Yeah, and the, and the Persians did that. You know, when they conquered a, a kingdom, they didn't always go in and just chop all the heads off. Sometimes they co-opted the locals, and, and they were kind of tolerant to local customs. Yeah, upcycling. Yeah. But 
This dissenter at the war table suggested that from a psychological warfare standpoint, quote, it would surely be an intolerable disgrace for Cyrus to give ground before a woman. That would leave Eastern territory open to sacrilege and blasphemy by the dirty Masajitai riders. Yeah, they were afraid of letting Cyrus get bossed around by a woman. I mean, when you were in middle school, remember, you used to play pickup basketball games on the... At the YMCA. Yeah, the YMCA. But the boys didn't want you to play basketball with them because they were afraid of getting beaten by a girl. Yeah, toxic masculinity. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So where we are now, Tamiris is giving Cyrus the option of fighting on her side of the river or his side of the river. She said, you pick... I'll fight you fair fight. And uh, this kind of got into Cyrus's head. Uh, he was he was told uh, by his military advisors, fight on our side of the river. But he's got this guy telling him, you know, you got to show that you, you got swagger. And so yeah. let's go fight on her side of the river. You know, we'll do the 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 big macho thing. Yeah, they don't want to give ground to a woman. Right, right. So it gets into Cyrus's head. He goes with the minority opinion. They send a message back to Tamiris and they say, okay, you guys withdraw three days march from the river and we'll cross unopposed and then we'll fight you fair and square. So the Persians crossed the river and set up camp and they were purposefully orchestrated and advertised by the word of the king. And this camp reeled in the tribesmen like moths to a fire. The tents were filled with lush banquet tables overflowing with sweet wine. And to the Masajitai, who had lived kind of ruggedly and only drank milk growing up, sweet wine sounded amazing. Um, And they wanted some. Essentially, the gatekeepers of the Persian camp were about as authoritative as mall cops, and the tribesmen easily broke through, led by Prince Sparagaspes, Tamiris' son, and they raided the camp, indulging in all of its treasures and drinking a lot of wine. They even drank themselves into a stupor like college kids on a Friday night, just as Cyrus's troops reeled back around like a spider to a fly caught in its web. They claimed the young prince as their captive and slaughtered the rest. All right, so Queen Tamiris was horrified and perfectly enraged to find out that her son, Prince Asparagus, as I like to call him, uh, has been captured. And in fact, what's even more shameful is he was captured because his whole army got drunk on all the supplies and stores and food that uh, and drink that they, they captured. Yeah, I would have been embarrassed. So she sends back another letter according to Herodotus. She bellows, glutton as you are for blood. You have no cause to be proud of your day's work, which has no smack of soldierly courage. So basically she's saying, she's telling Cyrus, look, you, you sucker punched us. She continues with this moving tirade, commanding, quote, Your weapon was the fruit of the vine that is poison you treacherously used to get my son in your clutches. Now listen to me, and I will advise you for your good. Give me back my son and get out of my country with your forces intact, and be content with your triumph over a third of the Masajitai. If you refuse, I swear by the son our master to give you more blood than you can drink. Now, these are some serious fighting words from Tamiris. Uh, Her people were very fierce about their family bonds, and so now she's looking at her son being captured, and uh, she's pissed. Tamiris was facing the might of King Cyrus and the Persian Empire, but she was not the kind of woman to back down from a fight. We'll see what happens next after a short break. 
She was definitely angry, and it would show in this battle. Even Herodotus, the page master of hundreds of battles fought over this corner of history, kind of wrinkles his nose at this fight, claiming it to be, quote, more violent than any other fight between foreign nations. It's not really a well-delineated and masterfully strategized fight. It was a cheap shot, down and dirty bloodbath. Kind of like some of your basketball games. Some of them, yeah. As these Persians and Masajitai hacked and slashed each other to death with arrows, battle axes, spears, and swords. Bloodied bodies were trampled in the mud as both sides essentially just were shoving more and more forces of men onto the field. Finally, the world goes quiet, and the ones standing are actually the rugged tribes people. The queen had won. Reveling in this victory, the queen surveys her new, essentially, wasteland, and she looks over about 200,000 dead Persian bodies. Now, Emily, this is usually the part where the captured son gets reunited with his mom, but uh, captured son was uh, pretty badly embarrassed at getting captured while being drunk. Yeah. So uh, as it turns out, uh, Tamiris never got her son back because uh, Prince Asparagus had uh, taken his own life as kind of the one last effort to uh, sort of salvage some of his honor. But uh, he took away from the Persians a bargaining chip they could use with Tamiris and basically enraged Tamiris even more. It was definitely a bittersweet victory. Uh, She won, but at this really great cost. Cyrus, though, would pay an even bigger cost. The accounts tell us that after the battle cries died down, the queen ordered a search for the body of the great king on the field. They lug this blood-streaked body up to the high command, and she shoves the head of the corpse into a sack filled with human blood and snarls. Though I have conquered you and live, yet you have ruined me by treacherously taking my son. See now, I fulfill my threat. You have your fill of blood. She defeated the man uh, who had taken out so many players in the world game at the time. Uh, with pure rage and violence, and this was kind of her seal of her victory. Yeah. Now, Herodotus says, you know, there are a lot of accounts of how Cyrus dies, and you'll find different accounts that he he was killed in fighting against some other barbarians, that he came back to uh, one of his Persian capitals, but Herodotus says, this is the version that I'm going to go with. And, uh, you know, at this point, it was a pretty remarkable victory because not anybody would have bet on the Masajitai in that fight, especially, you know, in a fair fight, letting Cyrus choose his own uh, turf. So in this case, rage uh, combined with a pretty good battle sense and battle instincts. So, Emily, how do you rate Tamiris as a war leader? This is a tricky one for me because we talked about how little we know about her, and it is so difficult to really know uh, her strategy and her input on this one. Uh, And it's really only one big battle that we look at. I have to give her some props for her um, ability to write and be a diplomat and uh, to inspire her people. Um, And and she did get a good victory, a solid victory. So I'm just going to give her a a seven because she had a solid victory, but I can't really give her any higher than that. We don't know enough about her. I got to say, though, the idea of taking the dead body of your opponent and shoving it into a sack full of human blood 
and screaming at it. That is metal as all get out. Yeah. So I do, uh, I do give her some props for that. And that scene has been recreated in a lot of Renaissance paintings. So everybody loves to see a dead guy's head getting shoved into a, a, a sack or a, a dish of blood. So I think if you do that, you're not to be trifled with, especially when you can do that to a superpowers king. So uh, she's a badass. Wouldn't you agree, Natalie? Cyrus found out the hard way that Tamiris was a woman who knew how to get ahead. He would have been better off leaving her alone. At the beginning of our show, we talked about never getting on a mother's bad side. As the first recorded woman to defeat an empire, Tamiris proved that nothing is as savage as a mother's protection of her children. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of War Queens. That's our show for today. Listen to every episode of War Queens for more stories of women who brought their nations through the fires of war. about war queens if you're curious about something you heard on the show we'd love to hear from you please email us at warqueens at diversionaudio.com again that's warqueens at diversionaudio.com we'll try to answer your questions on a future episode find us on twitter facebook and instagram at warqueens podcast warqueens is a production of diversion audio Your hosts are John Jordan, Emily Jordan, and I'm Natalie Emmanuel. The show is written by John and Emily Jordan based on their book, The War Queens. Our supervising producer and sound designer is Mark Francis. With production assistance from Antonio Enriquez, editorial direction from Jacob Bronstein and Scott Waxman. Our head of marketing is Erica Farmer. Our theme music is by Tyler Cash. Executive producers, Jacob Bronstein, Mark Francis, and Scott Waxman for Diversion Audio. Diversion Audio.